Professors FM. Doug, as you know, we have joined the Professors FM podcast network. So it's extremely exciting. It's like for the first time in my life, I'm going to have academic friends. This is big. And as part of this, we're going to talk about some of the other shows on the network. One of the things we talk a lot about in terms of sports analytics is the role of incentives, right? It's all about incentives. And so one of the other shows on the network is called Taxes for the Masses, brought to you by Lisa DeSimone from the University of Texas and Bridget Stomberg from Indiana University. And so what these two ladies do is they dive into all things taxes. I think it's a great compliment to what we do. In some ways, there's nothing bigger in public policy than taxes in terms of shaping the economy and society because taxes change how people behave. So, you know, give it a listen. Great show. Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Everyone, my name is Mike Lewis. I'm a professor at Emory University, and it's it's our pleasure to welcome you to the 2020 Fanalytics webinar series presented by the Emory Marketing Analytics Center. So the the Emory Marketing Analytics Center is a decade-old academic research center that has a focus, a a mission to help connect academic researchers like myself and students with with students, uh, with practitioners. So to be a focal point for the community interested in marketing and analytics. The Fanalytics Project is our the name for our research mission. And and what we really emphasize at the center is the the science of understanding ultra-passionate consumers um, via analytics, via psychological means. So our goal is to understand when consumers cross the line from just being everyday consumers to true fans of sports, politics, consumer products. So that's... Our, that, that's our starting point for, uh, for, for, the, for the center and the research mission. Uh, so what we are planning on doing this fall is we've got a speaker series that we're going to develop, deliver through a webinar approach that replaces our annual in-person events. So our goal is going to bring to, bring to everyone truly compelling, interesting speakers that are related to marketing and the practice of analytics. Uh, our first guest is um, is Mr. Todd Harris. Todd is the and you know Todd will in in the course of the the uh, the, the hour will fill in a lot of the gaps. Todd is the co-founder of High Res Studios that has brought games like Paladins and and Smite to the world. He is currently the CEO of Skillshot uh, Skillshot Media, so. And Skillshot Media is really an interesting entity. If you go to the website, Skillshot lists their mission as helping folks build community via esports. And so Todd is a great guest to start off the webinar series because he's, uh, you know, he's part of a truly fascinating and growing industry, esports. And it's right there in terms of how they present themselves as the mission is to really develop communities of, and I think I'll sort of fill in the blanks, of truly passionate consumers. Uh, Beyond that, Todd is the chairman of the Atlanta Esports Alliance. Uh, And so, you know, this focus on local growth and integration into the community is also truly something, you know, truly something powerful. As a on a personal note, Todd has also appeared, I think, for about five years in the sports analytics class I teach at, at Emory University. So I truly, I view Todd as a friend and really a great resource for the topic. Uh, the, the other gentleman that you guys can see up in the, uh, if, it's, if it's like my screen up in the upper left-hand corner, is Mr. Doug Battle. Doug is the communications specialist for the, and sports analyst for the Marketing Analytics Center. Doug will be monitoring the chat, uh, 
curating your questions. We want to make this as interactive as possible with the webinar format. And so we will definitely make time for Todd to address questions from the audience. So welcome, Todd Harris. Great. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be here with you and Doug. And uh, yeah, it's been awesome to have some connection to Emory and the Marketing Analytics Center that you guys have have put together and uh, certainly a chance for me to learn about the work you guys have done with some of the biggest traditional sports brands around fandom and consumer behavior. So yeah, happy to be here and share what uh, what I and the company have learned around esports to date. Awesome. So, you know, while esports is not is not new. And, and esports has actually made a pretty big presence in terms of traditional sports, you know, things like the NBA teams, almost all having esports clubs. So while esports is not new, I still think it's probably a little bit of a mystery to a lot of folks out there, especially traditional sports fans. And so just as a starting point, can you tell us a little bit more, uh, you know, fill in the details, give us a little bit of like the, the key background on high res skill shot and, and really just the nature of the esports industry. Sure. So um, I guess let's start with definitions. My, my working definition of esports is organized, competitive activity using video games, often in front of spectators. So there's a few concepts in there. Um, video games, computer games is at the heart of it. And um, companies like High res Studios locally are game publishers. So they develop video games. And that alone, without even getting to the organized competition part, that's a massive industry. Just gaming, digital gaming, it's $140 billion in revenue globally, which makes it by far the biggest form of entertainment. So you take all of the movie box office receipts and all of music and put them together, gaming is larger. So you're talking about a big commercial impact, a lot of consumers just playing games. So that's where a company like Hi-Rez fits in. They make games. This is organized competitive activity. So you need a group that actually does the organization and puts on events. A company like Skillshot does that. A little bit comparable to what the NBA does for basketball, or maybe even comparable to what the organizers of Wimbledon do for tennis. Because there's multiple esports out there, and some have a league format, and some have an event format. So you've got the publisher that makes the game, you have event organizers that organize the competitive activity, and then another big player in the ecosystem are, of course, the competitors or the teams. Um, So a branding unit that people can develop fandom around, same way the Falcons and the Hawks and the Braves here locally develop fandom. So game publishers, event organizers, teams and players they all come together to produce this thing called esports. And because there's these different companies, that's why sometimes it can be hard for people to get their head around it because it's not a single vertically integrated company. It's a lot of different companies that are collectively called the ecosystem. But it's very large, you know, that the number of people that are consuming this content on a monthly basis on a platform like mm-hmm. Twitch is already larger than the audience for ESPN, larger than the audience for CNN. And so a lot of people are consuming this content and that's eSports. Well, let's, uh, let, let's, let's go there just for a second. A little bit of a deeper dive. So what is, what, what is Twitch? So um, again, these game platforms are, are played on different, uh, different hardware. Could be the personal computer like I'm using. Could be the Xbox, PlayStation mm-hmm. connected in your living room to the TV behind me. Could be your mobile phone. So that's where you're playing the games. And then um, this phenomenon of people watching other people play games. This mainly happens over live stream networks where the internet itself is the delivery mechanism. So yes, you will hear from time to time about esports being on television, and that's great. But the majority of the viewership and the majority of the fandom today 
is OTT, you know, over the top internet enabled platforms. And Twitch TV has the biggest market share. So Twitch TV is a place that via my phone, via a browser, I can consume this content usually for free. And um, the uh, phenomenon of Twitch, which was acquired by Amazon for about $970 million a while back, it's really one of the things that has led to the global growth of esports. Um, when I was growing up, I'd go to Casey's Arcade and I would try to get the high score on Donkey Kong because I'm very old and, and I would try to be better than my friends. And that was competitive activity limited to the neighborhood. Nowadays, of course, I'm playing online against other people and our competition could be broadcast online to a global audience without really any significant fees. It's very, uh, the whole process has been democratized. It's very easy for me to broadcast the competition. It's very easy and free for people to watch the competition. And so that's part of why it's uh, seen this explosive growth. So Twitch TV, the main place where people watch other people play video games. Other big contenders are uh, YouTube, which has a live product and Facebook gaming. Those are kind of the top three currently that uh, have some live video game content. Okay. So that's, that's, that's interesting to me. And I think, uh, you know, obviously the name of Fanalytics, the emphasis we, you know, our starting point is almost, it's always the unit of, you know, what is a fan? And so one of the things that I think is interesting about esports is this multiple multidimensional nature of fandom. So uh, I, I, and uh, you know, what I'm hoping you can do is sort of drill down into how fandom works in, in esports. I mean, I, I think traditionally we think of, you know, the person putting on the Jersey, going out to the stadium and watching a team, but it seems like with technology and the nature of this, that fandom may operate in, in different, in different ways. And then the follow-up to this is going to be, how does that fandom, how is that a useful thing to businesses, both within the, within the category and external to the category? And if it's too, you know, I'll come back and. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot, a lot to unpack there. And, you know, I want to share some of the work that you're, PhD students, you know, did in this area when we when we explored it together also, because um, that was a pretty deep dive. So um, I guess just talking about the nature of fandom, there's there's some ways where esports fandom is similar to traditional sports, and I think there's some ways where it's where it differs. Um, certainly it's similar in that the passion level is at least as as high, you know, uh, just the overall level of intensity um, and also uh, support through dollars and time is at least as high as traditional sports. So level of passion is the same. Um, to give you a specific example around fandom around a game at High Res Studios, one of the games we made uh, is the game Smite, mythological characters. I mean, I probably have more than 50 tweets of players who have permanently inked Smite characters on their body. They've gotten Smite tattoos that are right from the game, right? So we're talking about really going beyond the game and, and to a lifestyle in terms of fandom. So very high passion level, but a few things that are different. Um, one is just the interactivity of the platforms that esports uses. So we talked about Twitch. If, if you and Doug are watching me play a game of League of Legends or Overwatch or Fortnite, whatever it might be, you know, while you're watching that content, you are real-time chatting with one another and, and forming connections digitally. You don't have to be in the same arena. And from time to time, you might ask me a question, and I'm fairly likely I might respond every once in a while. So the digital connectivity of the community is higher than traditional sports and the access to the competitor who's often celebrity status is also much higher than traditional sports. So these sort of tools 
help build a community, even if we're not in an arena together. There's still some community social glue happening through these digital platforms. So high interactivity of platforms, high level of access and interaction with players. Uh, Another key difference is community members really contribute to the ecosystem in a greater way. You know, you might be a fan of a game or a team and making original content through YouTube guides to help a player get better or to cover a particular team who's competing, who you are a fan of. And because this is just a digital sport for a digital age, for a digital audience, you are contributing to fandom. You're helping to grow fandom with your content whether that's YouTube videos or fan art, et cetera. So I'll pause for a minute and I want to talk about how a publisher, an event organizer, and a team all think about fandom differently. But first want to make sure that that first part was kind of clear. Well, absolutely. Let me, let me, let me add one sort of a quick thought, you know, this, this notion of the physical markers wearing the jerseys or getting the tattoo I think that is a great criteria for when a product goes from just having customers to when it has fans, when they want to wear the, the uniform. In terms of the, the building of community, which I think, you know, in traditional sports, having a community with these shared stories, shared narratives, shared history is of critical importance. It's really the, the foundation. So the question that I have for you is how much of this, I think esports is an interesting ecosphere in terms of how it's evolved. How much of the community sort of came from the bottom up and how much of it was created by, you know, folks like high res or, or, or Skillshot in terms of your, you know, how you run your business? Yeah, it's a great question. And I would say up until two or three years ago, it was almost entirely bottoms up. Um, community-led, grassroots, you know, these are the words that you would hear because the reality up until more recently is developers made games. Um, They make money because people buy more copies of those games or they buy things within the games via microtransactions or less frequently subscription. And that's their primary business. And they really were very focused on that. And it was the community and grassroots uh, individuals that started to organize tournaments to play these games competitively. And up until recently, developers either ignored them, (laughs) occasionally would even shut them down, but more often um, allowed them to exist or gave them a small amount of uh, support, promotion, or small prizing. It's really in the last few years that a few things have happened. Um, Number one, game publishers have recognized how much value they get. Uh, It extends the lifetime of their game. It extends the lifetime of a player. And per some of the research we did together, it even extends and increases the lifetime value of a fan Mm -hmm. who is playing Smite or League of Legends or Overwatch by having an esports scene. So we can get into that detail, but clearly publishers have recognized that, that it supports their main business uh, of selling more games um, or more game items by having an esports scene. And I will say that is a publisher using esports as marketing. Mm-hmm. And that's maybe version 2.0 of esports. If, if 1.0 is the community's doing it entirely, 2.0 is the publisher sees marketing value in esports and they might support it as a marketing cost. And 3.0 is a publisher or an event organizer like Skillshot seeing that esports could and can be a media asset on its own, it could actually be a revenue driver. The NBA doesn't make money because they sell basketballs. They generate a media product and they monetize that separate from the basketballs. And up until now, 
games are selling games, the equivalent of a basketball. And now you're looking at an NBA and teams and that being a separate marketing asset that can be monetized. So that's kind of the evolution from entirely grassroots to uh, now we have some examples like the Overwatch League and Call of Duty would be very specific examples where you have franchise-based, more vertically integrated ecosystems, heavily supported top-down. So that's kind of been the, the extremes. Okay, okay so I, w- I want to understand this, sort of the version 3.0, I think, is this this idea that now we're going to move toward, this is a big enough product. You got to have lots of eyeballs on this. It's a passionate community. And so are we talking about selling advertising um, or, or, or maybe, and is there, you know, I've got to think that a lot of brands want to touch this category, right? When there's this level of passion, this level of involvement, there's something valuable, there's something special there. And so what about companies from the from outside the esports ecosphere coming to you guys? Yeah. And so for a company like um, Skillshot, that well, is a primary. And, and, sorry, Todd, I don't want to interrupt you. Can I throw in one more thing to that? Sure. I also have to imagine that given that these communities came from a very organic place, does that add a layer of complexity in terms of managing, let's say, esports meeting the broader world in terms of how these folks want to be, how these communities want to be uh, managed yes. or marketed to? Yeah. So, so as you say, like at, at Skillshot, you know, we're, we're building communities around esports and we also have to pay the bills. And the way we do that is really connecting leading brands to engaged gaming and esports fans. And so to your point, the the hypothesis for ourselves and many that are investing in the esports industry but are not a publisher. It's very clear how publishers make money. It's hard to make a hit game. Once you have a hit game, people will pay you for it in some form of another. So that's clear. This new esports 3.0, how you're making money there is to your point, you have an audience. You have an audience that is very desirable and very engaged. Why is it desirable? Well, it skews young males in the tech field with a lot of disposable income. That's just as a macro. And and this audience is very coveted, but very difficult to reach because many of them have, have cut the cord with TV. And even though most of the spending from these brands is in TV right now, this audience is not hearing their message, or at least not as much as they did in the past. So you have this coveted audience that's hard to reach, that is hyper-engaged. On average, they're consuming an hour of live esports a day, And there's a decent percentage, probably 30% of the audience consuming more than 20 hours a week of live content. So it's a lot of time. And they're not just casually watching because of the interactivity of Twitch and these other platforms. While they're watching, they're chatting with other people about the content and they're on their phone looking at stats. So it's desirable it's hard to reach and it's hyper level of engagement. So all of those ingredients, you know, we're all looking for attention and relevancy. And if this has it, then there are brands increasingly that want to reach out and touch that audience. And to your point, it, it used to just be what, what we call the endemic brands, the people that are selling enthusiast level PCs like Alienware, uh, gaming headsets like HyperX, you know, the, the performance gear of gamers, if you will. But it's now Coca-Cola, Mercedes-Benz, Geico, Porsche. I mean, in every major category, you're now starting to see brands slowly. It's still behind the attention, um, but start to, uh, want to reach those valuable eyeballs and fingers on keyboards. So 
Is, is there a challenge for these brands given the, um, uh, I don't know what the right word is, but sort of how distributed the esports environment is, right? There's lack of central, there's no NFL, right? There's no NBA. It's definitely a challenge. Yeah, I would say fragmentation is a challenge right now because it's still very early. And um, the first hurdle a brand needs to get over is just understanding that this is actually real. You know, they might see their kid or their grandkid playing Fortnite and, and, and see it from that. But if they haven't been to an event and seen the passion level, they might not get it. The stats all kind of run together. So going to an event tends to open a brand's eyes, but then they do have a tough decision because there's a lot of inventory out there without consolidation to your point. Do they work with a publisher? Do they work with an organizer like Skillshot running leagues? Do they work with an individual team? That starts to be fairly overwhelming. And again, Skillshot's trying to help provide value to brands and sorting through that. But it is a challenge for the industry right now where there's so many different ways they might participate. Okay. Uh, let, let me just sort of tag something onto that. I, I love the point you make about this ultra ultra engaged consumer. I think that's a, that's really a a fascinating aspect of fandom. That's probably been unexplored everywhere in terms of not just reaching someone with eyeballs, but those eyeballs sort of hopped up on adrenaline, you know, what difference does that make? I think that's a really interesting question. Yeah. I mean, again, you might be at, I'll just say a, a traditional sports event, and I'm a traditional sports fan, so there can be plenty of fandom there. But but what I've generally observed in my firsthand experience is you might be there, and at a slow point in the action, you know, you're, you're scrolling on your second screen, your mobile phone, you're kind of tuned out. If you take a kid to a baseball game these days, like, they might be doing this and enjoying the hot dog and not that engaged. But this audience tends to be hyper-engaged, and their activity on the second screen is reading Twitter on what people are saying about this content, you know, what the trash talk is back and forth between the owners of the two teams and what the stats are, because all that is available real time, because this is a sport that was born in the digital age. Mm -hmm. So it really leans into all uh, all those platforms. Okay, next question in terms of the moment we are in. Okay, so we are obviously in a, a strange moment with you know COVID-19, basically all live events being shut down from the middle of March onward. Now, it, you know, from the outside, it would appear that esports is probably was probably perfectly positioned for this uh, because you can have these events with or without a, li- a live audience. You know, maybe in some ways you didn't miss a beat. How did COVID-19 affect, but, but like, let me add to that. I have been to an esports event. The passion is off the charts. I mean, the, the live audience is a big part of this story. But so how did this shutdown, how, how did this end up impacting the industry? So the impact is is mixed. I would say the there's some good and some bad, and and we generally say we're not esports is not COVID immune, but we're COVID uh, resistant, <laughs> which is definitely true. If you look at spending on forms of entertainment, you know most entertainment forms are have been in, shut down entirely obviously sports is now starting to come back but we're shut down entirely or you know down 50% so movies music concerts sports until recently theater performing arts it just couldn't happen um the two categories that are significantly up are playing online games and consuming video content these have uh, benefited economically from the shutdown because you are quarantined, you're in your house, you have watched everything you want to watch on Netflix, right? So that is up, but playing games is significantly up and consuming video content is significantly up. So esports has definitely benefited in terms of more eyeballs on the digital inventory that can be delivered over a digital media like this or like Twitch. At the same time, 
a, a big part of esports 3.0 um, was a live, in-person, physical experience. And that part, of course, has um, suffered some. So businesses in the esports world where their league format or their business model was highly based on foot traffic, they've had to shift to digital until that can return. So again, more physical your business model was, the more you hit negative, the more digital, the more you've actually benefited because you can still play the game and you can still consume the content. And until recently, you couldn't say that about um, physical sports. Well, along those lines, and, and this, I guess, goes back to the heart of how esports is, you know, its exact place in this entertainment, this bigger entertainment sector. It suddenly, it feels suddenly, we now have college football playing, professional football playing, the NBA playoffs, the NHL hockey, MLB, and major tournaments in golf and tennis as the sports calendar sort of went from empty to completely overloaded, does that touch esports, or are you guys something? Are you guys something that operates in parallel, uncorrelated with viewership of these other events, these other properties? Um, there's still some correlation. I mean, I think that you know the period where there was no sports obviously was, was very beneficial for esports because it was, you know, the only game in town. That's, that's the only content you could consume if you wanted live competition or, or one of the few. So that resulted, I mean, Twitch viewership was up uh, 23%. Uh, online playing on a platform like Steam, again, a, a high record, you know, 20 million concurrent people playing video games there. So extremely high. So that is going to dip, I believe, now that uh, traditional sports is returning, there's only so much time. So there will be some negative impact, but the lasting effects of new sponsors and new users discovering that content is going to benefit esports long term. Uh, the NBA, the NFL, NASCAR, musicians, Travis Scott and others, you know, they're kind of forced to jump in and understand esports in order to engage their community. And I think that's not going to turn to zero. You know, they're going to continue to invest time and attention to, to having an esports strategy where some of them did not. Same with brands, you know, that it, the other events were turned to zero. They had to jump into esports. There's going to be some very positive residual effects. But the reality is when there's more sports, it definitely affects our audience. Another way you can kind of test that that hypothesis, I guess, is um, as much excitement as there is about esports here in the U.S., the passion level and viewership outside the U.S. is generally even higher. And one reason for that is the lack of as many other traditional sports competing for eyeballs. So, you know, you have soccer globally, but it's not that you have as many major sports. In many of these regions outside the U.S., you have soccer and you have esports, and and the consumption patterns are even higher than inside mm -hmm. the U.S. Okay, let me change directions just a little bit. So one of the things I love about how you work, Todd, is your commitment to the local community. So not just... I think it goes beyond the esports community. And so every time I talk to you, I'm kind of amazed at who you're working with. I mean, it seems like it goes from high school to college to uh, industry associations. So, you know, tell me how you think of, you know, how does building locally within a geographic region beyond, you know, different from working with an esports community. How is that part of this? How is that part of the story? Thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, we're just fortunate that there's a lot of people in this region that, that get it. Um, I mean, maybe they didn't all get it 15 years ago when we started high res studios, but they definitely get it now. And so there's so many 
partners that we're able to help connect to deliver what we think is short-term and long-term economic benefit to the region and job creation and, and, you know, workforce development. And so, you know, very specifically, before I even talk about what we do, but just so people kind of understand the fortunate position we're we're in here, um, when you look at policy, tax credits, I, I mean, the state of Georgia just based on seeing success in the film industry and in, in producing films here, we have the nation's best tax incentive if you are a game developer to make games for high-res studios. And we have the only tax incentive that I know of in the U.S. for doing esports events here. Mm-hmm. So the state is supporting through very specific tax credits, not just making movies here, making games, doing esports. In terms of workforce development, it, it's also similar. And this is where our company helps a lot. Um, you know, from high school through college, there's a real commitment to training our young students in technologies that can make future game developers or future esports producers. Because the thought is, um, Gaming is a shiny object that attracts kids to tech. And even if you never go and do games, now you know how to do computer programming or you're exposed to STEM. And a lot of people out there are trying to solve how do you train people in STEM and they forget the part about, well, you need to make it cool for kids to want to be in the class. And most people want to be involved with an esports club on their school. So we were one of the first five states to adopt esports as a varsity sport in high school. You can earn a letter jacket. And we now have more than three universities locally, colleges that have varsity programs where you get a scholarship for being good enough at video games. Um, and then similarly, uh, you know, I'll, I'll shout out, you know, folks like Asante Bradford and Alan Fox, who are just out there doing economic development evangelizing uh, Georgia and folks like Dan Corso, who I work closely with, he heads up the Atlanta Sports Council. They're, that's the group that won the Super Bowl and brought it to Atlanta and um, you know, won the NCAA Final Four, which unfortunately COVID you know, shut it down this year, but brought it to Atlanta. So we're working with him to, take, to find the global biggest esports events the equivalent of the World Cup and the Super Bowl for esports and make sure we're presenting Atlanta in the right way. Okay, so related to that. And then last question, sort of an open-ended one, and then we'll we'll turn it over to the audience questions that Doug has been curating. So you've you've kind of in the in the tail end of that last answer, you you you're sort of pointing towards the future in terms of you know, what's gonna happen in Atlanta. You wanna bring more of this high profile events to the city, make Atlanta a hub for esports. Where do you see all of this, where do you see all of this going? You know, how is technology gonna to continue to evolve? How is community going to evolve? What's your, what's your vision for esports moving forward? I mean, I think if you've seen or read Ready Player One, you know, we're headed for the less dystopian, hopefully, version of that. Um, You know, at the end of the day, virtual environments um, are pretty compelling. And you're seeing you're seeing this convergence uh, in a couple different ways. Number one, you're seeing a technology convergence, which is which is exciting and why you want to be on the the leading edge from a workforce development and training standpoint, starting at, at high school. So Uh, Game engines like the Unreal Engine, uh, Unity, um, they are now can be used to make feature films or TV. Um, So this gaming technology can help deliver better visuals at less cost when you're making a feature film like or The Mandalorian, which was shot with gaming technology. And so that's in the film production standpoint. When you come to experiential events, the, the easy example would be the artist, uh, Travis Scott, being inside the game Fortnite and doing a musical performance. 
So the game Fortnite, crazy popular. They've had multiple music concerts inside the game. So all of our virtual avatars are there watching a concert. That was 20 million concurrent viewers. So gaming as a platform delivered the world's biggest concert already. And now the publisher of that game has announced an entire music concert series that's going to follow up. So the technology is converging where, just to your point, like gaming will be the platform. Gaming in these virtual worlds will be the platform where the world can come together and have a social experience and also um, have a somewhat experiential experience. And so music, sports, entertainment, it's all kind of coming together. And we at Skillshot and we in the region just kind of want to be kind of at the center of all that. Amazing. And I have to think with what we've, what we're witnessing in education and traditional sports with, you know, video monitors and stadiums and zoom based teaching that the world is evolving rapidly, but this kind of digitalization is something that it's arrived and now it's just going to see, we're going to see how it evolves and hits each of us. That's right. And even when we get out of the digital world, you know, Mike, and we're, we're in an arena and we're, we're gathered here in Atlanta at DreamHack or MomoCon, these festivals that, that locally draw about 40,000 people to experience mm-hmm. fan culture and, uh, and gaming and esports. You know, more and more, you're also going to see technologies like, like augmented reality and others to make those things very experiential because when you're delivering an in-person event, you're competing with the couch (laughs) and the couch is pretty damn comfortable. Like this place behind me, like I can watch a lot of Twitch on there and it's pretty comfortable. Like I don't have to leave. I don't have to drive. I don't have to face traffic. So a lot of when you're in the events world, you've got to make the physical event experiential and over the top enough that it's worth actually attending. And um, yeah, versus leaving the couch. Okay, at this point, I'd like to turn it over to the audience, at least in a uh, a virtual sense. And so, Doug, uh, Doug, what 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 are the what is the audience thinking? What's the audience asking? Yeah, uh, well, first off, before I answer that question, um, those of you that do have questions, uh, we encourage you to direct them to the Q and A function um, rather than the chat. It's more organized for us and easier to make sure. <laughs> Any questions in there. So I wanted to make that clear uh, before getting started here. Um, but as far as questions for Todd, and this one is from Josh McCall. Um, Josh is asking, what's the revenue model like uh, for a company like Skillshot and how do you envision it will change as the industry involves in the U.S.? Great. So um, again, before I get to Skillshot, for a publisher like Hi-Res, it's very simple. Most of your revenue comes directly from the consumer, and it's either paying for the game or paying for in-game content. Most of these games use a model that is freemium, or it's called free-to-play, and it's not every game, but most, because you want the widest audience possible. You download the game and you buy items within the game. And if it's a game that wants to be an eSport, then you avoid what's called pay to win. You avoid that Doug could pay more money and have a competitive advantage uh, against me because it wouldn't be competitive then. So you're generally selling cosmetics. And believe it or not, cosmetics can generate a lot of revenue. And so when we talk about the 140 billion for the gaming industry, it's coming from consumers to either buy hardware like the Xbox, or to buy software games or items in the game. So that's the publisher. For an event organizer, it's very similar to the pie chart of a traditional sports league or team. So your major categories um, in esports, corporate sponsorship is number one. That right now is driving most of the revenue. So I am Coca-Cola, or I am Mercedes-Benz, I want to reach the audience, and I want to be integrated into the programming, have a lower third, have the most valuable player trophy be brought to you by, uh, have some tasting if it's a physical activation with, with people when we return to that. That's the biggest driver of revenue. Uh, media rights is a secondary driver. So we're producing an event 
And in the same way with football, you have Fox and NBC and maybe Amazon these days bidding to cover that. Um, there's some of that in esports that's kind of waxed and waned, but it's still a category. So media rights to buy the rights to broadcast the event, that's kind of number two. And then you have consumer tickets and um, physical merchandise, you know, to Mike's point, wearing uh, a dream hack or a skill shot open hoodie uh, or a team oriented piece of merchandise as additional categories. And that pie chart is pretty similar to traditional sports. Um, we're just talking about doing it for esports. Okay. And uh, you touched on Charles' question as far as who pays who to get to the $140 billion. Um, Gregory Marks has a question saying with esports, there's the opportunity to play with or against these athletes online. How does that help grow the level of fandom? Yeah, it's a great question. It, it is to that point of a higher level of interactivity and access than traditional sports. Cause I'm no matter how many times I go to the pickup basketball court, I'm never going to run into LeBron. But if you are good enough in Smite or League of Legends, all of these games have a ranked mode inside the game. So you start, you just play for fun. Then you start to take it seriously and you play in the ranked or more leaderboard oriented format. And that's right within the game itself. You don't have to join a league. You don't have to leave your house. You just say, I'm going to hit this button and start playing ranked and climbing up the ladder. Behind the scenes, it's matchmaking you with other people hopefully at a similar skill level. So it's a balanced match. And if you get high enough, you could be playing potentially with professional players who are on salary or have won millions of dollars at events. And so it totally built, uh, leans into fandom because it speaks to the aspirational nature of esports. Um, you don't have to be someone with a build of six feet, six, five, uh, you know, with basketball, there's physicality with football, there's physicality with esports. no matter where you were born, no matter what your race is, no matter what your gender, it's a intellectual sport. And as long as you have access, the vision is you could be at the very top, the tools are there. So it really, really speaks to fandom and helps uh, grow a, a huge base of players um, that could one day be competitive and on the big stage. Okay. Um, and this is uh, PK Graf asking this question. What is being done to build a pipeline of folks to support this industry? So I've mentioned a little bit about that specific to Atlanta. And um, so what I can, I can say that, that here, um, I mean, as I was sharing with you guys before the seminar, I'm now an adjunct teacher. So um, we're, you know, we've rolled out through the Georgia Film Academy. So the Georgia Film Academy is a pretty unique concept here in the state. Again, we built these movie studios. We're shooting Marvel movies here. We need people to make that happen. So the Georgia Film Academy, uh, led by Jeff Stepakoff, was a model that says, you can go to a, 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 a school within the University of Georgia system and enroll and learn craft courses to work on a movie set, but you're taught by industry professionals and you actually go and work at Pinewood Studio, right, where the Marvel movies are, are made. And you're working with lighting people that light the Marvel sets. We're adapting that to esports. So our company, Skillshot, is working with the Georgia Film Academy the pilot class is at Georgia State. You enroll at Georgia State, you get college credit, you're taught by industry professionals, and you work um, in uh, COVID-free times in a production studio where you're getting that hands-on experience. So that's at the college level. And that's not just in Georgia. There are now 10-ish schools that are offering either courses or full degrees in Esports, either from a business marketing standpoint or an event organization standpoint. Okay. Uh, we've got a couple questions regarding getting into the industry. I'm going to read this one from an anonymous attendee. Uh, do you have any advice on how one can get into this industry without previous experience in the gaming slash esports industry 
Are there activities on the side a person can be a part of to raise one's chances? Um, I mean, the industry kind of runs on content. So a lot of people break in by developing original content around something they're passionate about. So what does that mean? That means making YouTube videos or making fan art or doing a blog, being a, being a journalist, covering a team or covering an event and just putting it out there because you can with the internet. And so whether that's, you want to break into high res, so you're generating videos around the game Smite, or you want to break in with a specific esports team, the Atlanta Rain, let's say, that competes in Overwatch. So you're, do, you're trying to do video interviews with those players or doing extra content. You know, you're volunteering time around a specific thing to get the attention of the organization. So that often works. And then there's a couple platforms that are free to network on. LinkedIn, I use a ton. Uh, it works really well. It's now as much a content platform as a recruiting platform. So network on LinkedIn, uh, Twitter and Discord are two other platforms that esports people tend to be very active on. And so you can also kind of digitally network even when you can't travel because of COVID uh, mm-hmm. using Twitter and using Discord. So, Okay. And uh, you mentioned the Atlanta film industry and, and how Atlanta's grown uh, kind of to be like Hollywood. But one of our attendees is asking, is Atlanta going to be the hub of esports like Silicon Valley became the hub for tech? We are the hub of esports attendee. Uh, yeah, no, we, we have a serious claim uh, for it. I would say, you know, right now within the U.S., uh, there's definitely a lot of activity in L.A. and a lot of publishers in L.A., But um, when it comes to hosting events, there's really only three places in the U.S. that can host the biggest events. I mean, there's L.A., there's there's Vegas, Orlando and Atlanta. So four, I guess, three in addition to us. And when you look at, you know, having the biggest airport venues like the Benz or State Farm, number of hotel rooms, there's just only so many people that can accommodate it. So we're in a short list there. And then in terms of the tax credits, there's no one that touches us. And in terms of the number of organizations already here, publishers like Hi-Rez, publishers like the, the company that makes Brawlhalla, esports teams, we already have three franchised esports teams. So the Atlanta Reign, who plays in Overwatch, Atlanta Phase, who plays in the Call of Duty, and the Talon, who plays in NBA 2K. Um, and there's more uh, kind of in development as well. So, um, yeah, I think we're going to continue to go very hard uh, after this industry and, and always be on the short list when people are talking about, you know, where the capital of esports is in the U.S. Sure. Uh, you touched on this earlier, but uh, Nicola Barrett, I hope I'm saying that right, is asking, what is the gender mix of the esports audience and how does this compare with those working in the industry? It's um, fairly male dominated, you know, the whole conversation right now, obviously national, nationally around um, kind of equity and representation is definitely uh, relevant in the game industry. I think one thing that people aren't aware of is the number of game players is almost 50-50. It's 47% female when you're talking about people playing games, but there's a lot of different genres of games. And um as with sports, while you might have certain mixes, you know, you don't have many females playing football, but you have a lot of females playing sports. In the same way with esports, um, first person shooters and, and MOBA games like League of Legends skew male, but there's still plenty of females that are playing games. They just don't happen to be esports that are getting a lot of attention. And that's just opportunity because. Again, you have 47% of the audience already being female. It's a higher percentage than when you look at a traditional sport like soccer that's been working towards you know, gender equity for a decade, and we're already there. And so it's opportunity for more different types of esports content to shine a light on the games that females enjoy. So it was a long answer. If you're gonna, but if you're looking to sponsor a current event that is has a lot of audience it's a more male demographic certainly but five years from now i think there will be many many options that you could choose that are predominantly female because it's such a huge opportunity 
Okay. Uh, Mike's giving me word that uh, we got time for <laughs> one more question, I believe. Um, so this one, it's from Doug Battle. It's not me. Someone's else logged in. <laughs> I promise I didn't type the question in and then pick it as, as the last question. I, I can assure you that is not the case. Uh, some professional sports teams are adding an esports division and players to their group. Do you think this will attract more fans upstream to the physical sport, such as basketball, the NBA, uh, from the esport, or vice versa, from the NBA um, over into esports? I think it depends. Obviously, I don't speak for any of them, but if I was speculating, I would say it totally depends on the owner and the sport. I think when you look at what the NBA is doing, so the Hawks here have a team that plays in the NBA 2K under the name Talon. And the Atlanta United have uh, a player signed, one of the best players in the world, who plays the video game FIFA, that's electronic soccer. I think what those two organizations probably are doing is trying to grow the audience for their main sport. There's a lot of kids today that discover soccer first from FIFA, not from real world soccer. And same with basketball. They're playing 2K first, and then they're discovering that they could go and watch NBA players in real life. So I think in those cases, they're trying to grow their main property. Um, but there's a lot of other cases. Look at Robert Kraft, who bought uh, an Overwatch franchise, or Michael Jordan, who's invested in esports, or, or Shaquille O'Neal, uh, A-Rod. You know, these folks are not investing in the virtual version of real sports like basketball and soccer they're investing in teams that play in league of legends and overwatch and smite and they just are seeing the parallels of traditional sports and they're trying to be a good investor rick fox went to carolina with me he he (laughs) saw his nba player great unc player he saw league of legends through his son's eyes and said this reminds me a lot of the nba this is the future so he invested so i think that's the more common case um but there's cases of both okay well you know i want to thank everyone who's joined us today and especially i want to thank todd for uh you know coming in and giving us a great overview of both of where esports are and where it is likely to go i in in 2020 I think this is an, an amazing story in terms of where the world is, where the world is headed. Uh, so thank you very much, Todd. Um, for the rest of you out there, I, I do want to just highlight something very briefly. As I said at the beginning, this is our public facing. This is replaces our physical conference. And so throughout the fall, we are going to continue to bring really interesting, high-impact speakers to you. So in a couple of weeks, we have uh, Mohammed Masakoy, uh, former Georgia, well, I guess once you're a Georgia Bulldog, you're always a Georgia Bulldog. So Georgia Bulldog, great former NFL player who will be talking about disruption. So a perfect topic for 2020. And then two weeks after that, we have the very recently retired uh, Jim Dinkins and Emery Goizueta alumni uh, talking about, well, you know, it's going to be a little bit open, but how a iconic brand like Coca-Cola weathers the the storm of COVID-19 as well. So again, absolutely want to thank everyone involved with a special shout out to Todd. Thank you. Thanks so much. I put my info in the, uh, in the chat there. So feel free to reach out. And I guess as parting, in addition to reaching out to me personally at Todd Allen Harris, I will, um, I will push one particular item because it's kind of an important one. So in two weeks, um, we at Skillshot are doing an event with an organization called Gamers Vote, and it is leaning into the digital platform of Twitch to send the message around how important it is to just participate in the process. So this is non-party, non-partisan, but uh, it's an event where we're going to do a competition in a game Fall Guys, which is a hilarious uh, game, which is top of Twitch right now, have some of the biggest esports teams participating and uh, really just around raising awareness to participate in the process. Um, the registration voting deadline in Georgia is October 5th. And so this event is happening right before that just to drive awareness. So invite people to tune in and enjoy the content 
and also kind of spread the message of Gamers Vote, who's been a great partner of ours. Okay, let me just so tag on just one thing. So that that was uh, a lot, and just to make sure that no one misses that out, we'll also release this. Uh, we'll release the webinar as a as a podcast in the in about a, probably in about a week. That podcast is called Fanalytics with with Mike Lewis, and so we will include all of that content, all of that contact information in the description of the podcast. Awesome. Okay. Thanks everyone. So, thanks everyone.